Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Ben Miller, CEO and co-founder of Fundrise, America's largest real estate investment platform. Founded in 2012, Fundrise is on a mission to use technology to build a better financial system for the individual. With over 150,000 active individual investors and more than $1.5 billion worth of equity under management, Fundrise has made high-tech, low-cost real estate investing available to everyone. Ben has over 20 years of experience in real estate investment and development. Prior to Fundrise, Ben was managing partner of Westmill Capital Partners and president of Western Development Corp., one of the largest mixed-use real estate development companies in the Washington, D.C. metro area. I'm also happy to say that Ben is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. In this episode, we discuss Ben's transition to becoming a founder, growing Fundrise, appealing to individual investors, his unique approach to raising money, and more. We end with a rapid-fire round of questions. Hope you enjoy the show. So, hey, Ben, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, how are you doing? Where are you joining us from? Washington, D.C. Great. And we're so happy to have you here. Could you start by maybe introducing yourself to our listeners and providing an overview of your career prior to joining Fundrise? All right. So uh, my name is Ben Miller. I'm CEO of Fundrise. I was, uh, I've been in this business now for 20 years, maybe 21 years. And I was doing institutional real estate, institutional finance before starting Fundrise. I, I think I saw in your uh, background, you had over 15 years of experience in finance and real estate, uh, working with companies like Westmill Capital Partners, Western Development Corporation. What did you learn from your time there? And then how did you kind of come to the point of making the switch to Fundrise? So I feel like when you get out of school and you go into work for companies, you think that people know what they're talking about and people are really like experienced and have good judgment. And then the more time you spend in an industry, the more you might look around and say, I don't know if anybody like actually knows what they're doing. Like it's, it's, there are exceptions to that, but it's surprising how often people actually make it up as they go. And then what happened is in 2008, I was probably like 10, 11 years into my career and the financial crisis blew up. And I realized that not only people not know what they're doing, they were doing the wrong thing for bad reasons. And it made me skeptical of institutions from that point forward. Got it. Interesting. And I want to jump into Fundrise a little bit more in a second, but I also noticed you're co-founder of Popularize. Can you talk a little bit about what this company does and why you wanted to start it? Well, I mean, when you, when you start businesses, you have ideas and then sometimes they're wrong. So we had an idea that we should create like a, a way to open up to participation into how like, you develop cities. But we found that basically there were a lot of uh, challenges. I mean, that our whole idea is you democratize not just investment, but how decisions get made, how information flows, a sort of open source software idea. And we tried to do that with, with um, Popularize, and it basically didn't work. So, I mean, it's, not a, it's a learning, but it's, it's not a financial success by any means. It was, it was, uh, it was interesting for sure. But, um, I mean, the key to success is, is actually failure. I mean, everybody says it, and, you know, dreading it. You can dread it as much as you want, but actually, like, you learn the most when things don't work. Well, maybe Popularize wasn't the success you were hoping for, but Fundrise certainly has been. You started the company in 2011, and it has seen significant growth since that time. 
Could you talk a little bit about the history of the company and how you've helped it get to the, the scale and size it as it is now? Yeah. So yeah, we're, um, I think, the 20th largest real estate investor in the world now by deployment. We have 200,000 investors, you know, a million members or more. So we're certainly scaling. And I remember when we started it, the, it came out of 2008 financial crisis. I was sitting there thinking, like, was there a different way to invest and raise money that's sort of outside the traditional system? And when I first started it, like, and I remember going to see like these big law firms and saying, like, we, you know, we want to like break open the system, change who gets to be the owner. And they were like, well, why would you bother with the little guy? That was literally what one of the biggest law firms in the country said to me. Why would you bother with the little guy? And it's because the institutional investor doesn't understand how internet works, how technology works. And um, over the last now ten, almost ten years, nine nine years, we've just we've built a software platform that basically has zero marginal cost for an individual investor. So whether we have hundred thousand investors or one investor, the technology doesn't care, right? So it's just uh, it changes the way that. The, the market works and it sort of surprised, continues to basically surprise the status quo institutions because they just look at us and they're like, well, that can't be. And one more point. Uh, I believe you raised your Series A in 2014 and then haven't raised VC money since then. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And this seems to be a fairly asset-heavy and, and capital-heavy business. So what kind of steered you away from raising more equity? We might be able to tell by now I'm a skeptic of institutions and the, you know, the idea that like some smart guys you know, somehow are going to help you by giving you money. Right? That, that's like, I'm skeptical of that idea. And so we're doing it currently in, in real estate, but venture is not that different. And so I, I, I worry about how venture capital actually warps businesses. And it's not something people really understand unless you've been through it. But the venture investor puts in money is basically debt. It's called preferred equity. Essentially, it's senior debt and want you to basically post up huge numbers within 18 months. They're not a long-term investor at all. They're a short-term investor. They want to raise their next fund. They raise a fund every 24 months. In order to raise a fund, they have to show performance of their last fund. So within 18 months, you have to raise another round so they can basically show performance for their fundraising, not because of your business at all. So there's, there's all sorts of um, misalignment. So we avoided raising venture money, even in series, our Series A was a corporate strategic investor. He's an entrepreneur. All of our board members are also CEOs of other companies. So they're not like sort of academic financial professionals and it makes them much better when it comes to making decisions. Do you feel like you were able to take more of a a long-term view in your product strategy or, or just your generic company strategy by not having uh, other VCs or any VCs on your board? Yeah, long-term. And the VC, there's obviously exceptions. There's like obviously in every industry, there's great exceptions. It's hard to build a business on exceptions. And so um, most VCs, most financial professionals are sort of derivative thinkers. They see what's hot. Oh, uh, you know, this is the hot thing. I'm going to invest in other companies like it. And I'm going to sort of hope that like, I can get, you know, sort of make a lot of money and get out before everybody realizes maybe it's not that good an idea. And, so, and if they were original thinkers, they would be founding companies. And that's just what original thinkers do. They don't go generally. Maybe they found a company and then eventually they want to just uh, 
back other people. And that's, those are usually the best venture guys or women. But it's, um, yeah, I, I have this like belief and I've experienced it that the kind of things you had to do to build the platform, it couldn't scale in the beginning. Like the right things were about like um, regulatory, working with the regulatory parts of our business. We work with SEC. It, that's not fast, that's slow. And you had to do it right. And they, the VC guy's impatient, very impatient investor. And kind of, a, again, they're like, a, they're very financial minded. So they're thinking about unit economics and, there's, and they're looking at lots of comps. So rather than thinking about the customer, so what's the customer's problem? Why are we creating something better? And so it's just a different, I mean, they're really, I mean, literally within a second that an investment company, a venture guy invests in your company, they're thinking about the exit. It's at every conversation, every interaction is about the exit, even if it's not explicitly about the exit. And that's not really how you build a great company. And maybe we skipped a little bit in the beginning, but you mentioned, you know, keeping the customer in mind. So what is the customer problem that you're primarily focused on solving? What's the value prop that you offer to these customers that other companies don't offer? So I'm going to like steal Clay Christensen's idea. So I don't know if you know, Clay Christensen wrote Innovator's Dilemma, and he was like the premier thinker, in my opinion, of business and tech. And he calls it like, uh, you know, what's the job to be done? Like, what's the, our, we have a customer, an investor, maybe they have $10,000, maybe they have a million dollars, and they're hiring us to do a job. What's that job? And so uh, here's what I think. I think our customer says, okay, I, like, maybe I just made like 100 grand, I have a bonus. I could put it in the stock market, but I'm not really sure if the stock market is going to go, like, go down by 40% a month from now. And be like, well, now I only have 60 grand. I had 100 grand. Now I have 60 grand. I don't really know what's going to happen. The stock market seems kind of like a, like a cloud, like, a, like it's just going to poof at any moment. So I want to find some place for my money that's good, but I don't want to put it in a, a bank. It's going to get zero return. So I sort of have this problem, which is I want to invest in something that's real, that's good return, but seems like it's not going to just disappear overnight. And so then they say, oh, I have a, a, oh here, here's a real asset. Here's like this sort of other way to do it that seems to have good returns and seems more stable. So I'll hire them to do this job that I want done. And that's what I think actually we're doing for people. So it's not all their money. It's just like part of their money. They're like, well, I want to have something that if the stock market or crypto just sort of like poofs and just like, oh, well, I don't have like, I, I'm sitting here with something that's like stable, more stable with better sort of higher income. It's just real. It's a real asset. I think the concept of owning fractional shares and assets has become even more popularized probably in the last four years. Have you seen that at Fundrise? Uh, do you expect the trend to continue? Yeah, it's funny. When we first started the idea, people thought we were like kind of this crazy. It was almost like like silly. Like, oh, this is what kids are doing, you know? Like, because fractional means small, and small means irrelevant in institutional finance. And it's just like when well, I mean, Robin Hood shows that there's a lot, you know, small but many can be superior to few but large. And so what fractionalizing is about is about lowering barriers to access, making things like just simpler and easier, lower, basically lower risk through diversification. But it, you know, we had to kind of invent, like fractionalizing real estate, we literally had to go into the SEC's office, sit down with them and say, like, this is what we're trying to do. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. Like, well, okay, we'll try it. Like, they were very open-minded, actually. But it, we had to create a new framework. How do you fractionalize a real asset? You see the surge in fractional asset like demand slowing down at any point soon? 
I mean, I, I, the fractionalizing is sort of like the how, right? It's not really why people are doing it. It's just it, what people want to do is they have a young investor, you want to try something. So we're working on creating a, a lower minimum for a, a kind of a young investor who wants to try it. So it's like not announced yet. Probably will be by the time we put this airs is like a $10 minimum investment. Like So $10 access to real estate. We just closed a $300 million financing with Goldman Sachs. The idea that you're getting Perry Pursue into that for $10 is just like ludicrous in institutional world. And so what that's really doing though for people is like getting them educated, getting them started, getting them access. And the fractional share is just like a mechanism, not so much like a benefit. I actually want to talk a little bit more about product strategy. So how has the product evolved since launch? And you know why not have this ten dollar minimum in place earlier? Well, I mean, so there's, there's really two questions. So the product evolved a lot. We started out, I had a real estate bias, and you know, ten years later, I think I'm a little more of a product. I have a product mentality and technology mentality, but I didn't really know what I was doing in the beginning. And so I, I thought, like a real estate person, a real estate person wants to invest in, in deals. Uh, oh. Like, do you want to invest in like an office building in San Francisco or an apartment building in Austin? I had like strong opinions about that, but what we discovered over time, over over the course of like you know six seven years, is that most people don't know, and what they want from us is like results. And so we created a product that's like more diversified. We basically handle that for people. We moved from like letting going sort of like investing in a deal to investing in like a a service like a, we're an investment advisor. We provide like access and a service that lets people to get at this problem I think they have, which is that they want something good, solid, that's not like basically correlated, as you say, with the stock market. So that's the product thinking. But the uh, actual like the sort of the second question, technology. I mean, basically, we we actually have technology problems now. So technology problem, an engineer would say like, okay, you need to like process millions of things in our case like shareholdings and, and returns and it actually takes a lot we have to like keep refactoring the code and and doing things that because it used to take us like 24 hours to literally like figure out for the system to process the, the amount of like um, dividends or the returns the distributions and could we have many we have like 25 30 million shareholdings now and so um to get the $10 minimum, that's gonna like, that's like an exponentially, like that's probably like probably 150 million shareholdings in like a few years. And so that was, that's really an engineering challenge. And so we had to do a lot, build a lot so that we could create a product. We, we also had created a, um, we filed and, and, and launched in the beginning of the year flagship fund that's like a mutual fund for real estate. So instead of holding stocks, holds properties. And um, that's, has sort of no redemption penalties. You can get in, and if you say, I know, you know, three months later, like, I just want to get out, there's no penalties. It's much more liquid. And so we needed something that somebody could get in and out more easily. And that was like a regulatory um, challenge as well. Maybe we should zoom out a little bit now. Real estate market has been very turbulent over the last year. Uh, curious uh, on your views, your views on this and how it's impacted Fundrise's ability to keep growing. Yeah, I mean, real estate has seen sort of what 
a lot of our society has seen, there's really been winners and losers. So if you were in residential in the Sun Belt, then you're a winner. If you were an office in New York, you were a loser. And same thing with tech or massive inequality in our society. There's just like this, this gains to the winner. And so we were in, we, you know, we, I think we owned something like 18,000 apartments in Sun Belt. So we were 85, 90% residential and sort of apartments. And, and we also have single family rental in the Sun Belt. That's seen like 20% growth in 12 months and office and certain obviously hotels it went down 30%. So we were right. We sort of, we owned the right assets. I don't think that was an accident. So we have an in-house team, private equity, you know, real estate team, 50 people. All they do is think about what to invest in, how to run it and how to drive returns. That's like not normal for a company, like a fintech company to have sort of both investment capabilities and technology. We have hundred software programmers and technology people. So it's like uh, we're, we're kind of a mixed uh, DNA of a company. How do you expect real estate as an asset to behave moving forward? Uh, do you think like, you know, residential spaces will still continue to do well and office spaces will continue to struggle? Do you think it'll stabilize a little bit? Yeah, I think there's certain things that are like are likely, but it's certainly in the world is proven to be unpredictable. So I, I believe that residential and the Sun Belt will have like a 10 year run. It's like if you live in New York, just buy a house, you have to go an hour and a half from the city and pay two, three, four million dollars. If you're in Sunbelt, you're paying three hundred thousand dollars for like a palatial home. You can work remotely because of technology, and there's just like a better weather, better amenities. So I think that this is going to be a huge driver of real estate. And real estate, like, um, it does really well in inflation, inflationary periods. So like we're <laughs> we have, uh, I mean, just yeah, a little technical. We have rent growth of seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve percent. We have interest rate we're borrowing at like two percent. You know, CPI inflation is at five percent. So we have like we're borrowing at like a negative real interest rate, and we're getting huge rent growth. And so it makes me feel like we have a long uh, run on this market. Amazing, and I like I like that you got a little more technical there. Um, going back to Fundrise, where do you hope to see the company? go in the next, say, one to three years? Well, we're scaling the business and we have sort of two initiatives we're rolling out. One is sort of a, like a broaden the product offering and another is to deepen the product offering. And so the deepen one is we, we now have a team of people who are writing software that are eat up the execution part of the, the operations, the, the stuff that we have like MBAs doing, we can get software to do. And so I think this, over the next 10 years, like the professional class, whether you're a doctor, your lawyer, your investment professional, you're going to start seeing like pressure from software that like people who are blue collar have uh, experienced for a long time. And that's going to be really interesting, but it's, um, it's inevitable. I mean, at the machine learning, the way, the way that information works, a lot of it can be done like uh, with software. Now there won't be there no MBAs, but just instead of, a company with 100 MBAs, you have a company with 50 MBAs. And so that means like 50 MBAs who, who, who make it probably get paid more than 50 who don't, you know, have to go somewhere else. And that's, I mean, it's, it's good to be the software in that situation, but it's, it's like uh, going to be, I think, a, a new dynamic for sort of the, the professional class who has sort of felt like they, the other, the other people 
like, you know, just aren't like as good as them. So, you know, they should go get another job. When that happens to you, it might be a different uh, dynamic. And the industry as a whole, are there other aspects of fintech or major trends within fintech that you've got your eye on uh, or that you're watching for the next, say, three to five years? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we AI or machine learning software, that's like secular, definitely going to happen. It's happening and it'll sort of sneak up on people. And then I, I think the other thing that's sort of like, say, like, there's 50 50 chance, which basically means we don't know, but it's, but I think if there's a blow up in the financial markets, which feels like it's overdue, doesn't seem like it's imminent, but I think you said three to five years, likely three to five years. And if that blew up, basically, like if crypto goes to like, you know, crypto blows up and goes down 80%, or if the stock market blows up and, and like, you know, Robinhood people get smashed and like sort of the, the fintech will sort of have to evolve. And I mean, we're, you know, so we're sort of a little bit outside of that, but I think that um, like that most of it, so fintech is finance technology. Most of what matters in finance is a cycle and like the industry is made and remade by the financial collapses that happen every seven to 10 years. And so like, if you're not playing the game for that, like for that moment, you can only take a financial sector like coming out of a downturn. You can't take it at the top of the market. That's crazy. So I think that that's going to be like sort of a defining moment for fintech. And a lot of companies like will will struggle and some will figure out real solutions. I haven't 2008 financial experience right before I basically was like scarred from it. And I like, I play the game always waiting for that moment because I think that moment is like the like, I mean, so, you know, almost once, once or twice in a generation opportunity. Seeing how much of the regulatory changes, especially for something like crypto, are going to be proactive to try to keep it in check or reactive like it was in 2008, you know, when things kind of uh, went downhill. Yeah, I mean, like, here's an opposite story, right? So financial markets blow up, stock market falls 40%, and crypto maintains value. Like, that's a totally different narrative. So does it maintain value or does it collapse? You know, I don't know. I have an opinion, but it's... Um, so that's my point is that fintech's success will be defined by its performance in the downturn. And I think that pretty much brings us to the end of like the main portion of the uh, interview. Anything that you wanted to chat about that we didn't get to so far? No, I actually feel like you did a really good job hitting the key <laughs> points. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, so the last part of our conversation is going to be the rapid fire round of questions. We hope to get answers uh, in 10 seconds or less. Uh, are you ready to go? Okay. All right, let's do it. Um, so what was your first job? I worked at a barbecue stand. Uh, and did you, were you a cook? Cook, cleaner, and sales, you know, and whatever, barkeeper, or whatever it is, the, the person who sold it, it was great. Love it. How do you start your ideal day? Uh, with a good night's rest. I, I have kids, and like, you so rarely get a good night's rest. If you get a good night's rest, the day is in good shape. And if you basically get woken up five times, uh, it's brutal. What is your favorite vacation spot? I would say surfing Costa Rica. Very nice. Uh, what's your favorite book? You might have already hinted at this earlier. Oh, my favorite book. Oh, God. Yeah, maybe maybe go anti-fragile, Nassim Tlaib. That's, a, I mean, it's up there. It's so good. It's so good. Nice. I'll have to take a look. Last question. You can take a little bit longer on this one. What does success look like for you and for Fundrise? 
I mean, my personal mission is like to like basically blow up the financial industry with software. I'm still skeptical from 2008 that people are getting treated well and that there's not like a, a like some hidden problem we're not going to find out about when the, when the sort of everything blows up and the tide goes out. So, so as personally, like I feel like, like if you look at financial industry, is eight percent of the GDP annual GDP of the country, and then in the 1950s it was three percent. So why is it? What's that extra trillion dollars like like doing for the economy? I'm not so sure it, it's really benefiting like most people. And I think we should like software can get it from like eight percent of the GDP back down to three percent and put a trillion dollars a year into like normal people's pockets. That's kind of my personal aim. And I think Fundrise is like, you know, part of it is like to get at that, like to use software, work with incredibly smart software people and investment people, product people to like make our dent in that as best we can. Got it. I think that's a pretty good place to end the conversation today. Thank you so much for joining the show, Ben. You certainly brought a unique perspective on a lot of the questions that we talked about. So it's great uh, hearing from you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.